for our study, let me just remind you of the things we have already discussed about Colossians. We really only made it through the very first point, and that is viewing the book of Colossians as a summary of the whole book. And the summary or the main point and theme of the book of Colossians is that in all things, Jesus Christ might have the preeminence. And we kind of compare what preeminent and prominent means. You can have a lot of people who are prominent, but you can only have one individual who is preeminent. And it kind of means like this, that in all things, Jesus Christ might be the one and only. Just as your wife should be the preeminent woman, not just the prominent woman in your life. She's got to be the one and only. So Jesus Christ is to be our one and only. And then remember, we talked a little bit about the fact that the devil is perfectly comfortable with you making Christ prominent in your life. But he hates it when you make him preeminent. If you draw a circle, if you put a dot right in the very middle, that is Christ preeminent, a Christ-centered life. But if you're just a little off to the left or to the right, the devil is per perfectly comfortable with that because he's just pre uh, prominent and not preeminent. And then there's lots of things that we kind of use in our Christianese and in our Christian life, things we say that are really in error. Because if you make soul-winning prominent, if you, uh, preeminent, if you make... Um, service preeminent, giving preeminent, Bible reading preeminent, prayer preeminent, all of those things are good things. They're just out of place if they're in the very middle. And that's how we talked about last time, putting those things together. And today, just kind of touched on it when we finished up last week, but today I want to talk a little bit about the study of the book of Colossians in the light of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is spelled with a G. It's not an N. It's a Greek word that simply means knowledge. And there are basically three books in the Bible that deal with Gnosticism. Of course, this one, Colossians, 1 Timothy, and then 1 John all deal with these things. And when people try to define Gnosticism, it is difficult to do simply because of the nature of what Gnosticism is. And I gave you this illustration in class number one, and I want to make reiterate it again. Gnosticism is like hash. Have you ever had hash? Have you ever had those stews where your mom just kind of gets stuff out of the refrigerator and puts everything together and you really can't identify it, all the stuff that's in it? You just know there's a lot of stuff in it. Well, Gnosticism is spiritual hash, so to speak. It is a, a subtle heresy that crept into the church. It had some of the main tenets. Was it declared matter to be evil? It was an intellectual, secretive type of of uh, knowledge that people felt they had that made them superior to others. It claimed to be Christian, but in reality, it was the combination of all different kinds of beliefs, hence the name hash, when they put things together. And I want to touch on it for you just a little bit and 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 talk about it. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. I, I do want to point out some of its uh, remnants, so to speak, in our own society. I can't give you a specific definition because, once again, it's a hash. And uh, but you'll 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 kind of pick up on it as we discuss it a little bit. But the false theories of the Gnostics was that there was an intellectual exclusivism to the truth. Only they had it. It was a secret knowledge. Um, at times in my growth as a Christian, I've come across books and things that seem to give us this idea that the Bible has this surface information, and then below the surface information there is a code, a secretness to it, or or something that you can get a hold of that, that'll let you enter into these things. That's the idea behind Gnosticism. It is not inclusive, it is exclusive, and it usually appeals to the intellectual 
pride of the individual. And the gospel always cuts at the heart of intellectual pride and will not allow us to approach things in our own mind, in our own way, but come as a humble sinner, as Jesus Christ commands us to do. And so as Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's going to deal with these things, this intellectual exclusivism. exclusivism. And uh, let me get to Colossians because my Bible is open to Acts. But as he deals with these things, you'll understand that even though he's not naming Gnosticism because he doesn't really want to give it that credence, he's dealing with it because the principles transcend the age. It's not just when he was living that this is around. It's certainly still around today. And so if you look in Colossians chapter 1, evidently somebody has torn Colossians out of my Bible. Here it is. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and a desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And the word there, filled with the knowledge, carries with it the idea of being filled with the full knowledge of his will. It is He's fighting against this idea that there's something secret, that if you're just a Christian, there's something you don't understand, not just the fact that you haven't studied the word of God, that you don't know these things, because those are available to every man who will apply himself, but that there's this 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 Illuminati kind of idea among Christendom, that the secret knowledge that you can get in. Paul said, no, I'm praying that all of you get the full knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Stay in the same chapter, look to verse 28. For we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Why would he use the word every three times in one verse? Because he's fighting against this idea that there is a secret exclusive group within Christendom that is superior to all others. You've got to kind of be in the know. And while that idea is not predominant in our churches, I catch it sometimes from individuals and from the way some preachers carry themselves in regards to the Word of God. One of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church fought so hard against the Bible being translated into the language of the common man in England is because as long as the Bible was written in Latin, only the intellectuals and the educated could read it for themselves. And the Roman Catholic Church always made this made this statement that they didn't want people misunderstanding the Scripture, so they must be dependent upon the priest to interpret it for them. And so they kept it in Latin. And when it became in the, when it came into English, and common people could read it and understand it, there's a loss of power. And while we as as evangelicals scoff at the Catholic Church for that, we do the same thing sometimes in our churches by setting up the pastor or some man of God or a teacher as the only one who can interpret these things for us. When if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, even if you've never been to Bible college or school, He can help you understand all things. He can. Now there's some advantages to education. I went to school, but I went because I needed it. And not everybody needs it as bad as I needed it. But what you do need is the Holy Spirit to understand. And he'll always use other men to help you grow. I'm not opposed to studying. These guys who get up to preach and just trust God to bring it to their mind, they better do a whole lot of reading to have something to bring to mind because God pulls from the well that we fill with our own study. And so if you want to remember things, put something in. But the idea that there's the secret stuff that only those who are educated, God's against those things. That creates human pride. It creates fleshly 
predominance one above another and it feeds the part of us that God wants to destroy and the part that he hates. And intellectual exclusivism was one of the tenets of Gnosticism. And Paul deals with it in the book of Colossians because he wants every man everywhere to know all the truth of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we find in Gnosticism is Gnosticism talked about the doctrine of angelic connections. That's a kind of an odd way to say it, but what it is is this idea that God imparted his will to man through angels, and Christ was the highest of those emanations. Notice that. Would you agree that Christ is higher than the angels? Yes, but notice the insidious nature of that terminology. By making Christ the highest of the emanations, you are demoting him from, from his position as God himself. And you can see the influence of other religions in Gnosticism because it approaches it not from right on attack against the deity of Christ. It seems to be elevating Jesus Christ when in reality it is demoting him. And by making Christ one or the highest of the uh, emanations from God, you're demoting him. And so just kind of make it practical. The Jehovah's Witnesses demote him. They make him one of the highest, but not God. The Mormons demote him. They make him the highest angel, the highest emanation from God, a lesser God, but not God himself. And so Paul is dealing with this. And if you look in chapter 1, verses 14, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, if you read Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you read Colossians 1-16, it says that all things were created by Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John says the exact same thing. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not a single thing made that was made. That's the idea there. And so Paul is emphasizing this idea that Christ is not the highest of the emanations from God to man. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh, and he is the creator of the world. And not, his, not only is he the creator of the world, notice it says, by him all things consist. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, he created it, and he keeps it going, right? This deist idea of God just lets things go on their own. Paul says, no, 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 no. He, he upholds all things. He makes it consist. He's the one who created it. He's the one that sustains it. And so this pulling in of these different ideas that we see in other religions creeping up all come together, mixed up in this Christianity hash called Gnosticism that feeds our intellect and demotes Jesus Christ from his position of the one and only. No man have seen God at any time, but Jesus who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. How do I know God? Through Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. He's God in the flesh. That's what it tells us. And so do not demote Jesus from His position with Gnostic ideas. Anytime someone seeks to lessen who Jesus was, that's an element of Gnosticism. Anytime. Anytime somebody tries to make the gospel a secret thing, that's an element of Gnosticism. The secret knowledge that people don't understand, only I understand it. And then Gnosticism had this legalism in it. And this is the influence of Judaism, that you had to keep these laws and rules as well as trust in Christ. 
as your Savior. And that leads to self-trust and self-confidence. The fact that I'm accepted by God because I've kept certain rules or I honor him through the things that I eat or don't eat or these laws that I keep or these sacrifices that I make. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 14, Paul says, that Jesus Christ blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was con contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What's he illustrating? The fact that all of us have sin, and the only way we're ever made right with God is not because we have done anything, but Jesus Christ took our sin, and he nailed it to his cross, and therefore we are free and forgiven. These are just a few of the ideas that crept in with this Gnostic uh, 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 religion, for the lack of a better word. And it's just a man-centeredness that shows itself in a lot of ways in a lot of different religions. And anytime someone's being secretive, anytime someone tries to make salvation a, a, a product of works that you have done, anytime they try to demote who Jesus Christ is, take them to the book of Colossians, because Colossians is combating all of those ideas. Colossians makes it plain that the knowledge of what Christ did for us is available for every man. Colossians makes it plain that Jesus Christ is the answer from God because he is God himself, the creator and sustainer of all life. And Colossians makes it plain that there is no rule that I have to keep to make me right with God. I'm right with God because of what Christ did for me on the cross. And these legalistic restrictions were just part of the big hash that was put together. And Paul is combating these things as he writes the book of Colossians. Now, when it comes to the intellectualism of Gnosticism, I want to stop for a few minutes and talk about that and how to deal with it a little bit, because I still see it in our churches today. We are always looking for an intellectual answer to the questions that men have. And there's a difference between questions and questioning. Questions are the desire to know. I have an answer. I have a question. I need an answer. Questioning, it's not really the desire to know. It's the desire to argue. It's the desire to, to, to question with an attitude that's not looking to know, but, but, but looking to, to be in resistance to or to be in opposition against something. And if you are a witness of Jesus Christ, you'll always come across that guy who's educated, who asks certain questions, and the tendency will be to try to answer him on his intellectual level, right? Um, I love apologetics, and by apologetics, I mean the defense of what we believe and why we believe it, and I have, every Christian should know that to some degree, but sometimes that really is feeding the intellectual pride both of the Christian who's studying it and of the one he's approaching and trying to answer all of his arguments because it just maintains the intellectualism. Let me give you these things. When you preach Jesus Christ to the intellectual, always make sure that you're simple. The gospel is a simple truth. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sin on the cross, and the only way you'll get to heaven is by trusting in his finished work. Man's cures for man's sins are always complicated, Christ and the gospel is always a simple thing, always a simple thing. And when you're dealing with someone who's educated, don't try to approach them on an educated plane. Take them to the gospel just like the common drunk on the street because he needs Jesus. And the gospel is an affront to his pride, but he will never get anywhere if his pride is not addressed. And lots of times we try to take the gospel to people and approach it in such an intellectual way that it does not offend their pride. They can maintain their 
arrogance, their pride, their intellectualism, and still embrace the gospel. And those two things just don't work together. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you in due time. God hates the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we've got to be careful when we deal with intellectualism. Preach Jesus Christ. That's the central thing. Just preach Christ. Christ, you need him. You need him because you're a sinner. Secondly, always understand that anytime you're talking to anybody, whether educated or not educated, intellectual or not, that the core issue is not the intellect. It's not the mind. It's always the will. The greatest verse on that is John 7, 17. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he tells them that if any man wills to do God's will, he'll know the doctrine. In other words, if you're willing to obey, God will show you the truth. The reason why many people can't see the light is because they're not willing to obey it anyway, and God knows it, and because of that, they're always blind to it. And so understand that simple truth always makes a demand on the will of man. And when you're talking to somebody who's intellectual, who is educated, just get to the will. The third point is to not call them intellectuals. In the three books about Gnosticism, Colossians, 1 Timothy, and 1 John, none of them, Paul or John, never refer to them as intellectuals. They didn't call them Gnostics. Because here's the truth. Can you be intellectual and be spiritual? No. Because if you're not spiritual, I said it the right way, can you be intellectual and not be spiritual? No, you cannot be. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And if you reject Christ, if you reject his word, you're not really a wise man. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, no God, I don't want you. So you can't be smart and be a fool at the same time. All right, so we have dealt with the fact that the main theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And then we have just looked at the insidious nature of Gnosticism that Colossians is dealing with. Thirdly, as we study Colossians, let's look at Colossians' place in the canon. And by canon, I'm not talking about the cast iron pipe that shoots projectiles, but C-A-N-O-N, which is the idea of the collection of books that we have from God. Now, we know the scripture is inspired, and the order of the books certainly was superintended, if not in, in, inspired itself. And I want you to get where Colossians is in this book, in this in the book of the Bible. It starts with Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Let's just look at those, because we see Romans and Galatians both give us and emphasize faith in Christ alone, Christ plus nothing. All right, of course, other books talk about that, but these emphasize it more than any others. Faith in Christ alone, Christ plus nothing. The book of Ephesians gives us the idea of the all-inclusiveness of Christ. Everything that I get in the person of Christ, like this, all things from Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians is. The book of Philippians is the outworkings of all the things I get from Christ. I can put it this way, all things for Christ. All things from Christ, Ephesians. All things for Christ, Philippians. Ephesians, the six chapters, the first three deal with what we possess in Christ. The last three begin to make that application, and Philippians is the fulfilling or the carrying out of what was started in the book of Ephesians in the last three. It is that if I am receiving from Christ, it'll lead me in application and growth. I will believe it and behave it. And then the book of Colossians takes us to the zenith or the pinnacle of Christian experience, and that is a life centered in the person of Jesus Christ, that pinnacle. 
And then first and first and second Thessalonians talk about the second coming. So look at it like this. So we have Romans and we have Galatians right here. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then the book of Ephesians takes us to all the things we get in Christ. And the book of Philippians leads us to how that ought to work out in our life, all the things we do for Christ, which leads us to the very pinnacle of it, Christ preeminent in our lives. He is the center of all things. What's the next step up? Well, Jesus coming to get us and taking us back. That's what First and Second Thessalonians is all about. And so Colossians is exactly where God wants it in the sequence of books, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. First and second Thessalonians. And I would just remind you that that is the pinnacle of Christian existence for an individual to be and to have a life centered in Jesus Christ. Not how much I pray, not how much I read, not how much I give, not how often I witness. Anytime we focus on those things, we are making a, by, a goal out of a byproduct. Christ is to be preeminent in all things. Now, let me just carry this just a little bit further uh, and, and kind of make it my fourth principle, comparing the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians together. Romans and Galatians go together, right? Because they are the companion books on salvation by grace. But Ephesians and Colossians go together because they are the companion books on the church as the body of Christ. Ephesians emphasizes the church is the body. Colossians emphasizes Christ is the head of the body, which is still using the same metaphor of the body. This is the church this is the head of these two things, all right? And when we understand these things, we, we realize how well they fit together, and then we need both sides. We need to know our role as the body of Christ, and we need to recognize who our head is and to make him preeminent in all things. In contrast, get this, Ephesians mentions and deals with the Holy Spirit several times. Colossians only mentions the word spirit one time. It's in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Why does he not mention the Holy Spirit more? Well, because it's a book about making Christ preeminent, not the Holy Spirit. You say, Brother Dusty, isn't the Holy Spirit God? He is. And God the Father is God. But the Trinity, Godhead, decided that the primary way we would understand anything about God is through the person of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son and God in the flesh. And any time we emphasize any doctrine above the preeminence of Christ, we've got to be careful because we're in error. I wouldn't offend any of you, but there are large groups, even of Christian friends that I have, that emphasize the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to an error, to a point of error. Emphasize correctly the doctrine of the Holy Spirit makes Christ preeminent. Emphasize incorrectly the doctrine of the Holy Spirit makes the Holy Spirit preeminent. And that is an error. That is an error because the Holy Spirit always exists to lead us and point us to Jesus Christ. And the movements around this false idea of the preeminence of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes labeled as the charismatic movement, seeks for the experiences of speaking in tongues and being slain in the Spirit and the healings and these kinds of things. And that's an error. Those are byproducts. The goal must be Jesus Christ. Now, he may grant us with all of these wonderful things that might happen, but anytime I'm seeking for the experience or seeking for this manifestation of the Holy Spirit outside of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, I am in error because the Holy Spirit always makes Christ preeminent. His very nature is to take the backside of things, to act in the submissive role, to not force himself forward, but to force the person of Jesus Christ forward. 
27 books in the New Testament, 24 of them mention Jesus Christ by name, by one of his names, in the first one or two verses. The three that do not are the Gospel of Luke, 2 John, and 3 John. That's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that all of the books, all 27 of them, are Christ-centered. But not all 27 are the Holy Spirit-centered. Not all 27 even talk about the Holy Spirit. But all of them talk about Jesus Christ because God desires to emphasize the person of Christ and all things he must be preeminent. And if you're busy studying apologetics without the preeminence of Christ, then I appeal to you to get Christ-centered. If prayer is your driving focus, but Christ is not the center of those things, just your prayer, then get Christ-centered. Get Christ in the middle. If winning souls is your passion, make Christ preeminent in your soul winning. If reading the Bible is your passion, don't make your study and knowledge of the Word of God preeminent. Make Christ preeminent. Look for Him in every book. Understand where He's at. Then you will reach the zenith of Christian experience, the pinnacle of what God created you for, and that is to live a Christ-centered life. Yeah. So next time we're together... We're going to start working our way through some of these ways that Christ is preeminent. Colossians tells us he's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in redemption. He's preeminent in the church. He's preeminent in wisdom and education. And he's preeminent in worship. And then we're going to take make applications for each one of those things. So here's your homework. Read the book of Colossians. It's only four chapters. You can read it in one setting easily. When you get done, read it again. And then read it again. The more you read, the more you invest, the more you'll get. But look for Jesus Christ throughout this book. Right. Thank you so much for listening. If this has been a blessing to you, this video of this podcast, share it with somebody. If it's a video, it's easy to share. Just click share if you're on Facebook or on YouTube. Send it to somebody. Let somebody know about the podcast so they too can understand the things of God. Now, they're way better Bible teachers than I am. But it doesn't matter who's teaching you. Don't listen to anything because Brother Dusty says it. Get in the Word of God. Search the Scripture. See if these things are so. Be a Berean. Make sure that the Spirit that's teaching you these things is the right one because you are in the Word of God. You have him. Let him work in your life. This is Dusty Brackett, and this is Rooted for Liberty Church. Thanks for watching.